Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, Tom Orlick, Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist. He joins us on the latest. Tom, from your position, from your perspective, looking at how things concluded on Friday, are you surprised this Monday morning that the Chinese still want further talks? Certainly, the indications coming out of China over the weekend haven't added to optimism, uh, Jonathan. Um, As you mentioned, I think it's important that the Chinese official media is not using the term deal in any of their reporting on what happened. uh, And that obviously indicates there's some distance still to travel. Um, At the same time, um, relative to where we were a month ago, Um, I think we're in a slightly better position, and I remain cautiously optimistic that this very, very limited mini-deal could still get done. Tom, do you think that China wants materially more concessions, or do you think that this is just a matter of trying to let people know they're trying the best that they can? So I think they would certainly want those December 15th tariffs off the table. Um, As you remember, that's the tariffs which would hit the consumer electronics sector. That's your iPads, your iPhones, your laptops. Um, And um, frankly, I think that's actually a really pretty realistic ask by China. Um, It would be it would be very painful for the U.S. to put those tariffs on just before Christmas to hit so many iconic products, so many iconic brands just ahead of the uh, Christmas shopping season. I think probably the U.S. doesn't want to impose those tariffs either. Um, So if that's what China wants, I don't see that as a significant barrier uh, to making progress on this mini deal. I have to agree with you, Tom. I think it's highly unrealistic to expect the Chinese president to go down to Chile and sign a deal with December tariff hikes hanging over him a month later. Beyond phase one, it's phase two where I start to worry. And that's where the hard work really starts for me over the harder issues. This is the easy stuff to come to an agreement on. We've seen it multiple times over the last 18 months. Phase two, we're told, Tom, those talks are going to begin almost immediately. How difficult is it going to be to come to any agreement? And with that in mind, to what degree is there a large risk that this just blows up all over again? So, I completely agree with you, Jonathan, that phase two are where all the difficult negotiations take place. That's where the US and China have to talk about market access, intellectual property protection, China's program of industrial subsidies, what to do about US sanctions on firms like Huawei uh, and the Chinese surveillance firms, which the US has accused of being involved in human rights violations. So all kinds of really thorny, difficult issues there. At the same time, I don't think that the US and China actually have to solve those issues to put a bit of a flaw under global confidence and global growth. Um, I think the optimistic case right now is we get the mini deal done, more agricultural imports, we hold off on the tariffs coming in October and December, and we agree to have constructive talks on those big, difficult questions. Will we solve those big, difficult questions or not? In a sense, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that the markets have a sense that tariffs aren't going to go up and that talks are going to continue. Tom Orlick, great to catch up with you, as always. Tom Orlick there, joining our, leading our economics coverage here at Bloomberg.
Let's bring in Andrew Holland or shall we? City Chief US Economist, he joins us now. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Let's talk about the deal that wasn't a deal and the prospect for a deal ahead of a November signing ceremony. Your view this morning. Yes, I think I have to agree with a lot of what Tom was saying. It's not really surprising to see that China and the U.S. are going to be speaking more about these issues and that December tariff hike in particular is really the important one. That's where all the direct consumer goods are going to come in. And you would expect that part of even this phase one of the deal would be some agreement or at least some understanding about what's going to happen in December. So I can't be too surprised. James Athey uh, at Aberdeen Standard had this to say, we are in the last knockings of this cycle. Trade is an irritant, not the disease. Would you agree? I think that that's a very insightful comment in the sense that a lot of the slowing that we're seeing in the global economy, I don't think you can tie directly to trade. So it's true that trade is a negative and the uncertainty around trade is a negative and that's weighing on the outlook. But if you look at the slowdown in Chinese manufacturing, for instance, that began well before we had the escalation of trade tensions. On the flip side, if there is some sort of trade deal, as per what has been discussed, how much will that give a boost to the U.S. economy? I I think the direct boost is actually limited. We're more looking at this in the context of an outlook that's fairly solid for the U.S. economy, even with this trade uncertainty, with then a big downside risk that we get a big pullback in investment from corporates. We haven't really seen that pullback yet. And we would hope that even in the kind of scenario where we kind of plot along and you don't get a final deal on these issues, maybe investment can at least be kind of flat, if not increasing. If you do get a deal, that's upside risk for investment. But again, since we haven't seen a big pullback that's directly related to trade, you're not going to get a big boost just because you make a deal on trade. I'm really interesting, Andrew, just to get the view of an economist on this trade deal, if you want to call it that, and what it would mean for the economy. It's incredibly nuanced. But when you look at the market, market pricing was pretty decisive when it came to what the Fed should and shouldn't do or will or won't do at the end of this month. Why do you think this is shaping Fed expectations to the degree that it is when you don't have any real conviction on what it does mean for the broader economy? I I think it's not surprising to see markets reacting with a lot of sensitivity to these issues. Um, On the other hand, in terms of what the Fed is actually going to do, um, I think that the Fed is taking a longer view here. And even if we have some phase one, if we have some agricultural purchases, what the Fed is going to be looking for is have you resolved some of these fundamental uncertainties. Um, So in terms of what the market is looking for, the market, I think, is looking for do we get at least some kind of truce, some kind of detente so that we can kind of take these off of center stage for the time being? And that would be positive for risk assets. Maybe you price a little bit less for the Fed. But fundamentally, I think the Fed is going to be largely unchanged despite these developments. Well, Andrew, we're a couple of weeks away from that Fed decision then. You think no change at the end of this month? We, we think they cut now at the end of this month. We, we changed that view um, after we saw those negative readings in the ISM surveys. It was right. really a pretty, pretty negative um, reading that we had for ISM manufacturing down at 47.8. And we thought that would be enough to just push the committee to cut in October um, and then probably not cutting further. And so then you have to ask, does this trade issue change that in any way? Does the positive developments around trade uh, change that? And again, I think the Fed is going to be watching the data here. Data have been a little bit more negative. That's why they'll be cutting in October. And I don't think that the trade developments change that. Andrew Hollenhorst, great to catch up with you. As always, City's Chief U.S. Economist joining us here in New York City.
alongside me this morning, Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovitz. And Lisa, we've been talking about it through the morning. A lot of happy talk through much of last week. This morning, just a little bit more scepticism around two key stories, not just trade, but Brexit too. I, again, am surprised at the incredible optimism and today the pessimism, even though it's clear it's not going to be so easy to get a China deal and it's not going to be so easy to get a Brexit deal. I think you are seeing some muted responses on both sides at this point. People looking at the uh, the talk and saying, honestly, the longer this drags out, the more the effects are going to happen, regardless of what agreements people come to. Muted price action too. Equity futures are lower this morning, but not by a whole lot. We're down by six points on the S&P 500, down some two-tenths of 1%. In foreign exchange, Lisa, it's really, really interesting what's going to happen here. Very little detail around what this FX pact actually is. Is it just words? Does it actually mean anything? Is there any kind of enforcement mechanism? Does it have any material meaning for foreign exchange markets? A lot of people think that a little bit on the edges, it puts the pressure uh, on on keeping a lid on where the UN goes, but there is no enforcement mechanism from what people are saying. And this is similar to what there was back in February. There was a similar type of agreement. It's more something uh, for the US Treasury to hang its hat on and for China to kind of point to as a win for the US saying, look, uh, we're, we're throwing you a bone and not trying to compete with our currency. We've got a perfect guest to weigh in on all of that. Jeremy Stretch joins us, CIBC head of G10FX Strategy. Jeremy, would love your take on that situation. Some kind of currency agreement between the Chinese and the United States. Very little clarity, any detail around what that currency pact actually is. What does it mean to you, Jeremy? Uh, good morning, Jonathan. Well, I think in a sense, uh, as ever, it is all, all about the details or the lack thereof. So in a sense, it's an opportunity for both sides to suggest that uh, they're not going to be sanctioning or tolerating a significant degree of uh, deviation. Uh, but I don't think it signals in itself any obvious uh, sort of uh, step change in terms of the underlying dynamics. And I think what we've seen over the course of the last few months is that as we've seen the gradual imposition of tariffs, then accordingly, we've been seeing the CNH depreciate and weaken as the Chinese economy is also moderated. So if there is a degree of, a degree of agreement going forward and we don't see an escalation, in uh, tensions, then that might provide some stability and ultimately a degree of uh, a reversal in the CNH. But I think it is very much a case of uh, watching and waiting to see how the political uh, factors play out over the course of the next few days, weeks and months. Although even without this sort of uh, FX agreement, isn't there a pressure on China and the PBOC to try to rein in how much uh, and how, frankly, quickly the UN is depreciating just to, in terms of capital outflows and just investments in the, in the country? Well, I think when we've seen previous episodes of, uh, of weakness in the currency, we have seen a particular concern about uh, the degree of capital flight. But the evidence this time doesn't look quite as pervasive in terms of the degree of capital, capital outflow. So I think that does suggest that the authorities can be a, and will be a little more relaxed. And in a sense, as I say, I think there has been a degree of rationality in terms of the way that uh, dollar CNH has traded, because, of course, the dollar has been generally broadly strong across the, uh, across the board. And so accordingly, uh, dollar CNH moving up has been uh, you know, a, a sort of a realistic and rational market, uh, market reaction. If we can see some uh, stability on the data front, then I think uh, we will see a, 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 a sort of a topping out in dollar CNH, and we won't see any particular concern about uh, capital leakage and capital flight further down the track. Jeremy, just in terms of the policy outlook from here on out, October tariffs are now off the table. December tariff hikes are still on the table, though I think most people concluding it's unrealistic to expect these two leaders to meet in Chile next month and sign a deal with the December tariff hikes hanging over us. 
do you just see it as inevitable that those December tariff hikes are taken off the table as well? Well, you can never say anything is inevitable in this particular process because, of course, we've been toing and froing over the course of the last four or five months in particular as the, the, as the news flow has uh, oscillated. But I think it is realistic to assume that if there is going to be any progress, then it's more likely than not that uh, the additional round of tariffs will also be postponed or pushed into the middle distance. Um, but I think it, it, in reality, probably what we are going to have to get used to is that whatever the uh, final destination is of these uh, trade discussions, we are likely to have a greater degree of trade friction or tariff barrier than we would have had prior to the start of the process. It would, so it will inevitably end up with a restriction on trade, but I don't think we're going to see the sort of the extension of the tariff thresholds because, of course, that would have some particular concerns for the consumer sector in the U.S. as it would be rather more difficult to uh, argue that uh, the Chinese producer is paying the tariffs once they are extended towards uh, consumer-orientated goods. Jeremy, you're in London, so we'd be remiss if we didn't hit on Brexit. And I'm sure you are so excited to talk yet again about uh, Brexit. But I, I really do want to get a sense of just how volatile the pound has been and how much it's trading like an emerging currency. I mean, at this point, uh, how, can, how much conviction do you have in your recommendations when it comes to sterling? Um, well, if it, if it had been television there, you would have been seeing me sort of having a wry smile as you talked about the volatility <laughs> in sterling. Because, of course, uh, when, we, when we look at the performance and reaction that we saw in the last two sessions of last week, which was the best two sessions uh, that we'd seen in 10 years, and then you know, we've almost, uh, we're getting towards reversing half of that uh, uh, move from Friday, just underlines the degree of uh, volatility. And as you say, if you didn't know what currency pair you were looking at, you could have been uh, uh, persuaded to suggest it could have been uh, somewhat of a more emerging nature. Um, but it does underline the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of the high-frequency political risk that we're really dealing with now. And of course, uh, as the negotiations go down to the wire for the uh, for the Brexit process, uh, I think it is going to be a period where we are going to be very, very susceptible still to these headline risks. Um, I think the market, which had been uh, largely assuming that an extension was almost inevitable, got excited about the prospect of uh, an earlier deal late last week, but I think now we're having a dose of reality kicking in, and then one suspects uh, that it will be uh, very much a, uh, a sort of an oscillating market until we get beyond the weekend, when of course we have uh, the first parliamentary sit sitting here in the UK since 1982. One thing we struggle with a lot, Jeremy, and I'm sure you struggle with it too, market participants have to be political analysts, an analysts constantly. We have to read the political tea leaves. Of the political tea leaves in the United Kingdom right now, just what are you focused on this week ahead of that EU summit? Well, you're absolutely right about the need to be a, a political analyst. It's, it's far more so in sterling terms than you would be necessarily a macro analyst because, of course, the macro picture has been totally blindsided. Um, I think, in a sense, for the course of the next two days, we'll be watching and, and waiting to see the news flow or the leaks coming out of Brussels vis-a-vis -vis the negotiations with the EU. But I think also one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that if there were to be a deal agreed, it has to be ratified by the UK Parliament. And in that regard, I think the uh, key constituents will be the Democratic Unionist Party, the small Northern Irish party that had been and have been supporting the Conservatives in uh, their minority government over the course of the last few months, and also the tone and appetite for supporting the government from the European Research Group, the uh, Conservative Eurosceptics. Those are two groups who are absolutely pivotal to any success in uh, a Brexit vote should a deal be brought back to Parliament before the end of the week. Jeremy Stretch, always great to catch up with you. CIBC head of G10 FX Strategy. Joining us out of London on the latest on the trade deal, the potential for an FX pact, what it looks like, and what on earth is going on with Brexit.
earnings season is almost upon us, and that means we need to catch up with Betsy Graysick, Morgan Stanley's Head of Banks and Diversified Finance Research. Good morning to you, Betsy. Hey, thanks so much. Good morning. Let's talk about these bank numbers you're looking for. Top of mind, according to you guys, rate sensitivity. How important is that for some of these companies? Oh, critical. Look, I mean, rates is about half of the revenue stream. So you have to think about not only where you are in 3Q, but what the outlook is into 2020. How do you generate any kind of outlook at the moment, Betsy, given how (laughs) rates have whipsawed through the last couple of quarters? Yeah, fair question. Look, you know, we do keep our models live. So as the forwards are moving up and down, we are flexing our estimates for that. And, And sometimes I get some questions, especially from... Uh, investors, some smaller investors saying, hey, you know, you're moving your numbers around a lot. And I'm like, hey, it's a reflection of what's going on in the bond market. So I got to keep them live, you know. John, I love how excited Betsy is when she came in. <laughs> she's fired up. She's fired up. She said <laughs> she I, loves I, I the earnings more, season. I felt more energetic after Betsy walked into the I room. I did too. I, I feel like we have to just take a moment to appreciate that. She was saying this is what she lives for is the earnings season when you actually get a read on the banks. What are you expecting when it comes to loans and sort of how much that's expanding given the low rates. Look, it's so interesting because we have a very unusual economic situation right now today where loans are actually growing pretty strongly. I mean, you know, we all see the H8 data, five, between somewhere between four and 7%, depending on the week. If you're a big bank, small bank, what kind of asset class you are. And one of the surprises this quarter relative to our models, two things. One, commercial is actually a little bit better than we've been looking for. And consumer, especially in auto, is a lot better. You mean in terms of the loan performance? In terms of loan growth. In terms of loan growth. Yep. Um, one thing that I'm wondering is how much pressure there is from the Blackstones of the world mm. and the Carlisles of the world that mm. are raising record amounts of money and cash. How much are they taking business away from the banks? You know, there's obviously some. It's, it's you know, we have this debate internally. Is it structural? Is it cyclical? You know, it's a little bit of both, right? Um, and what we've seen is that there is about one percentage point or so of commercial loan growth uh, that looks like it's gone to the shadow in each of the past, you know, over the past 10 years, right? In each of the past 10 years, yeah, so 10 so, percentage points over that time. Yeah, yeah. But see, let's move on to mortgages. I hear everybody talking about mortgage business, hardly anybody talking about expenses. You are. (laughs) How critical is that to look at both sides of this story? Absolutely. You know, when we look at what drives alpha in bank stocks, it's operating leverage. So you can't just look at revs. You can't just look at expenses. You got to look at both. And, you know, we know that revenues on the mortgage side are going to be a little bit better than expected because of the refi activity that's been so strong. But, you know, a big piece of that is paid out to brokers. So you have to add that into your EPS. Which bank do you... Go on. Which bank do you think is going to outperform the most? In terms of the estimates or in terms of the stock price? Estimates. Okay. Um, Where we are above the street the most is for names like Discover. Why is that? That's mainly because of consumer credit. And frankly, Discover actually put on Friday their master trust out after the close and net charge offs came in, you know, a little bit better than seasonality. So that's the main reason. Betsy, I know you've got to run. It's been great to catch up with you. Good luck for the rest of the week. All right. Thank you. And they're going to be exceptionally busy. Betsy Grasick, Morgan Stanley, head of banks and diversified finance research.
My question is whether anyone trades on the trade headlines anymore, <laughs> considering the fact that the action is uh, fleeting and rather unreliable. David Sowerby would love to weigh in on that. I hope. He is uh, Ankara Advisors as Managing Director and Portfolio Manager uh, joining us on the phone. So, David, what is your sense? I mean, how, how much have you actually traded ever on some of the headlines we've gotten uh, on trade? One word, never. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> good, good, good luck predicting politics, particularly politics in the last year and a half of this on-again, off-again uh, trade issue not just with China, but uh, global economies in particular. And I think one number really drives it home. I can, I can trace the, the trade issue back to about mid-March of 2018. And if I take it all the way to the present, and I look at the median company, the median company in the S&P 1500, which encompass, encompasses large cap, mid cap, small cap stocks, that median company is flat. We've had median zero returns in large, mid, and small stocks since March 2018. The cap-weighted indexes are a little better, but when you look at the breadth of the market since March of 2018, it's been zero when at the same time the 10-year U.S. Treasury has compounded at better than 8.5%. Yeah, so David, that maybe reflects the fact that corporate America you know, is just not sure what the future holds in the near term, given the uncertainties surrounding trade. Um, so as we head into this earnings season beginning uh, in earnest tomorrow, do you expect to hear more from corporate America about, hey, we're just kind of playing it close to the vest, we're keeping our spending a little bit tempered, we're maybe not opening a new plant or ramping up R&D? Do you expect to hear some of that out of corporate America? On, on the margin compared to the second quarter, Paul, yes, I do. And, and in the second quarter of this year, after all the companies had reported their earnings and you listened to the conference call and, and through artificial intelligence, you were able to see how many were discussing trade and tariffs compared to the first quarter 2019 or even 2018. It had gone up measurably. Last year, the, the focal point was tax cuts, deregulation being positive to, to earnings in the economy, this year, it's the uncertainty of trade. And I think by the time we're done with third quarter reports, on the margin, it's going to be higher. Uh, CFOs, CEOs don't like uncertainty. We know that for certain. And I think that's going to be a telling point as we think about this earnings season because it's so important because it sets the table for 2020. CEOs don't like uncertainty. That's one no. thing that's certain. Yes. Love it. Love it. All right. So neither, uh, neither do portfolio managers for, for that matter. No. And, and, and frankly, neither do uh, radio hosts who have to talk <laughs> about the same story on a different side every single day, uh, flipping and flopping. And so there's a question of when you start paying attention and earnings definitely is something that you need to pay attention to. Uh, what earnings are you paying especially close attention to uh, during this round? It, it's twofold. It's it's certainly it's going to be the cyclical companies and energy, uh, uh, the cyclical part of tech semiconductors. But but I would add in I'm going to spend a lot of time on, on all companies, but in particular the consumer because the consumer has been just the heavy lifter in in the, in the last couple of quarters. So if you get a sense that the consumer is starting to get a little weathered over the the tariffs and trade even starting to impact them versus last year's glow of the tax cuts, which I would contend were very positive for the U.S. consumer, 
then I start to worry. And one of the best things that 2020 expectations have going for it is that it'll it'll have easier comparisons to this calendar year that we're in. And besides easier comparisons, it's harder to make a case for uh, for what Wall Street's expecting today, and that's 10% earnings growth in 2020. I think it's 5% or less, frankly. Yeah, David, that's kind of where I wanted to go about, you know, 2020. Right now, as you suggested, the market's pretty optimistic as it relates to earnings, but that's tough to really uh, support if you're in that camp that says, you know what, the economic environment we're in now, it's a 15 to 2% GDP growth uh, kind of scenario, and that's really tough on that scenario to, to make a case for 10% earnings growth. What is your view? I, I think this. Uh, as I said, closer to 5% or less next year. And when you talk about one5 to 2% growth rates for, for the economy, and then you connect the dot to corporate profits, we were getting there in 2018. We were getting to 3% potential real growth for the economy, which nobody anticipated a couple of years ago. We were seeing double-digit growth in corporate profits. A lot of that was the byproduct of the tax cuts and, and more sensibility, I would contend, on regulation. And we've probably diluted half to two-thirds of that with the indirect tax from the tariffs, and that slowed down the speed limit to 2% real growth in the economy, maybe less, and now corporate profits in the 5 to 7% range. I want to shift gears just a little bit. I know the bond markets are closed today for the Columbus Day holiday, but I'm wondering what you make of the pretty large sell-off that we saw last week. It's still on, it's still the, the tariff issue, global growth. If I had to watch one business number every month, I'm, I'm a devout uh, student of the Purchasing Managers Index. That has decelerated, particularly for exports, uh, new orders as well. I think the market has has... Uh, becomes quite skittish over that. Last week, we saw that sentiment for uh, bearish sentiment on the weekly numbers got to 44%. That's uh, meaningfully above the long-term average. From a contrarian perspective, I get more excited when that bearish sentiment starts to push on 50% bears than I think uh, market weakness has been washed out. It's a good time to be a buyer, but we're not quite there yet. David Sowerby, thank you so much for being with us, uh, anchoring Ankara Advisors, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager, uh, talking all things trade and banks, possibly some value there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.